so here's one of the other things when you have when you're on heart meds um you just i eat a little bit but more frequently because the pills they kind of make you nauseated so i can't, I can't eat too too much so eat a little bit whenever you feel like it that's it yeah so yeah so the key key historic events for cities right there's a pandemic we have rapid global urbanization and then the the economic revolution that we're going through right now so i got a few things about what happened during the last pandemic with shutdowns everywhere but in that two-year period there were 50 million people that died and 500 million people that were infected but there's all this hardship right that came out of it and then people just expected that we would run into the roaring 20s but it wasn't really the roaring 20s right with jazz music and swing dancing and sort of a new era for fashion and aesthetic and socializing that there were tech changes that happened then which was like designed to keep people at home so that was the washing machine the vacuum cleaner and refrigerator that's what came out of that time zoning also came out of that time really yeah so zoning it was uh sort of taken off and it wasn't a result of the pandemic but part of it was the thinking of it was all surfacing at the same time in los angeles and new york and zoning at that time where you can say spatially was structuring cities factories go here here's where the downtown is here's where people live here's where people shop here's where sanitation will be but it also created like segregation because of people who had homes and single family homes created these single family home residential areas that kept other people out poor people which were marginalized colored communities some of the stuff still exists in covenants today like in west van right there's there's crazy land use covenants still in place that say no person of african or asian descent is allowed to occupy a home in the british properties that's wild and that they have to unless they're and they can enter the premises as a server they can servant as a servant oh my god so as a slave wow so those those still exist and that's kind of the precursor of rezoning and that segregation so at the same time we're going through a pandemic so you could use health reasons in terms of spatial organization of cities so it's it's interesting right there's a sociology sociological experiment that you can look at with with um how cities were arranged through zoning how it how zoning was good and how zoning was not equitable and the tension that existed a hundred years ago when zoning first originated and we're a hundred years later having the same conversation around the tension between zoning today allowing um regulation to happen but also building to not happen what did the creation of zoning in the 1920s have to do with the pandemic that just preceded it so zoning was created for a number of reasons and aside from the spatial organization of cities it was also around infrastructure development so it's that's a very fancy way of saying you need to have clean water and clean, clean sanitation in order for clean cities so with waterborne illness airborne illness and um sanitation that didn't exist like it does now and a healthcare system that didn't exist back then like it does now so it's just government intervention 
There's government intervention in health, which created public health care 100 years ago, and that was a precursor for it. And then also around land use regulation. So that's that's at the very sort of bare bones of the story, the origin, the OG story of zoning. Is it a good thing? Is it still relevant? Um, man. So I'm a trained, educated urban planner. And the education that you go through around public policy, zoning, regulation is all sort of put forward academically in a very different way than it is put forward in practice. And you can say that about any profession, any profession. They don't really teach you about the politics of planning. They don't teach you about nimbyism. They don't talk to you about sort of the rate of change in communities and neighborhoods and that sociological tension that occurs when you're in planning school. So when you're learning about zoning, you don't know about any of that other stuff. You kind of figure that out through life in your career and hard knocks and going through things. So that that's kind of like as an introductory comment is zoning a good thing. You're taught that it is. You're taught that public policy is good. So at a very in a very naive way it sh- it should be. But it is the it's a subjective implementation. And planners will tell you that they look after the public interest. Builders will tell you, home builders, that they are building for the public interest. And there's a tension between the two. And I don't want to get into an entirely Vancouver centric conversation because a lot of the frustration with others on your podcast is going to be Vancouver driven, the city of Vancouver. So let's just carve a black hole for a moment in the region out of there. I look at my former hometown of New Westminster. I think they do a pretty good job of building housing there. I think Coquitlam would tell you the same thing. I think Surrey, up until there was a bit of a blip with the last mayor We'll say anyone who's watched the Avengers, Cam, you and I do movies. So I know <laughs> would know that there was a five year blip, right? Yeah. Or end game. And so I mean, there's a bit of a four year political blip in Surrey. Let's just say that. And I won't say anything else. So they and they've done a good job of building. And so they there's a relationship between the administrators of the policy, the creators of the policy and the implementers. The right. administrators so, are, explain that, dumb it down for me. Okay. So was that a three syllable word or something? <laughs> it's just <laughs> slow down, please. <laughs> a bit too much. Yeah. Yeah. I know well, you're cam good, right? One syllable each way. Anything over that's a bit difficult to understand. I get, no, Come I get now. it. I get it. I get it. English was my second language too. Was it? Yeah, yeah, it is. So you're from New West. Well, that's, that's not the reason I didn't learn English, but being an Indo-Canadian, <laughs> being an Indo-Canadian, uh, yeah, the child of Indian immigrants. My father was a dump truck driver and my mom was a was a homemaker. I didn't learn English properly until I was in school. I still remember thinking in Punjabi. The voice in my head was not English for many years. Interesting. But yeah, I'm I don't know, I'm one of you now, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah. Uh, so what so, is the administrator of the municipal so the, policy? So the administrators would be your development planner. Okay, you have the policy creators as being your city planner and your city council. The ones that create the policy, and then there's the ones who sort of deliver it. Those are the two parts I would generally. Politicians and staff? Yeah, politicians and staff create the policy, 
staff comes up with recommendations, then a report and policy council debates it, then adopts it. The Broadway plan, the Vancouver plan, an OCP, a community plan. There's one part of City Hall that, that comes up with that. And then there's zoning and land use and an implementation tool that falls out of it. And, and so that is where the story making of policy and the guidance is one side. And then you have um, the regulation part of it in terms of getting it built. So there's, there's tension on both sides. And then you have the ones who build it. Developers will say they are the implementers, the ones who build it. People at City Hall in Vancouver, a tone that they take is that they are the actually the implementers. You're, you're doing what their expression of a public interest is. So that's, that's kind of, wow, you asked me to dumb it down and I think it just made it more complicated. So just think of City Hall as ones that create policy and a developer is the one that has to implement and build it. That's the easiest way to, to, to think of it that way. Your original question was around zoning and policy and, and tension. So you can kind of see that historically the grassroots uh, utopian thinking that created zoning and land use is not devoid of a socio-political context. And so it's been like that for a century. Because of when it was created? I think it's just, it's the way that it's created, right? You're, Even still. Yeah. You're, you're, so the political arena, and there's a lot of talk about someone cut the red tape. The province should take control. Why doesn't the federal government do something? And zoning and municipal regulation around land use exists in this form, some form of this, in a local small democracy all over the Western world everywhere save maybe houston where i think you kind of build anything anywhere right anyone who's who's been there that's that's the other extreme new york is like it. it's heavily regulated it's largely legal london is the same and uh so to to say that there is going to be some type of urban development messiah that will take away local democratic decision making uh is not going to happen that's just so naive. But the flip side of full control over regulation and the stuff that came out of the last pandemic. So let's go back to 100 years ago. We're talking about original zoning. In that pandemic, we had like 500 million. In the 1918 in the uh, pandemic, the quote Spanish flu. So the 1918 pandemic lasted a few years. 500 million people are infected, 50 million people died, and there was a lot of rapid change that came out of that period, very similar to today. So the fact that movie theaters and businesses and retail stores were boarded up and these makeshift morgues were created a hundred years ago is very similar to things that we saw early in the pandemic in New York. Anyone that was watching CNN in April of 2020 would have seen the same thing. And so a few years before that with zoning and land use regulation becoming a thing and continuing to develop and you throw in a pandemic, there is um, not just a land use implication out of it, but socio-political implications. So at that time, there was 
coming out of the pandemic, a number of things that I, as a planner, like to look at. Because the, I think as a, as a species, humans can learn a lot from the way that we have behaved in recent history. In some ways we change, and in some ways we don't. So I, I took great interest in our human history story of 100 years ago. And so out of that, uh, we had our, t- our tech innovation were things to keep people at home. So those are vacuum cleaners. That was a big tech change for us back then. Refrigerators, ice boxes, and uh, laundry machines. Those are all tech innovations that became a thing back then. On top of that, we had radio. Radio was the equivalent of our Zoom. And so people would sit and listen to a radio. This is before the days of television. And so that became our way of mass communication. And that really took off out of that period of the pandemic when people are home in terms of the way they got their information, very much like us and in our technology. So the, number one, there was tech change that came out of our cities and our urban environments back then had implications on how our homes were being planned. We had very similar tech changes like that that I don't need to get into. A number of them are obvious, right? The, the rise of the Amazon retail at home shopping, Zoom, our uh, uh, tech changes around communication. Uh, this podcast is an example, right? Of getting information out there. And so there's very rapid tech change that impacted the way that we live on a micro level within our homes. That's number one. Similarities from 100 years ago to today, very similar. Good stuff. I would say it's good stuff. Cam, good stuff. Right? Cam, good stuff. I'm Brad. <laughs> so, um, but what else came out of it? And this is a very long answer to your original question around zoning, right? So now that we're kind of getting into that, uh, we became a very regulated society coming out of that last pandemic. And if there's one thing that hasn't changed in our human species, it's how much we like being overregulated or how much we like rules. Especially when we're afraid. Yeah, exactly. So that's the social, social part of it. So we have, uh, there's fear around vaccines. There's anger around mask mandates. There's anger around shutdowns, uh, anger and fear around our schools, whether they're open or whether they were closed. So there is that this regulatory, over-regulatory function that you could argue has to happen. I would say that a lot of that had to happen. Some people would differ, but we can all agree that there's tension that came out of that. And there was sociopolitical tension that came out of the last pandemic. And the KKK went from 200,000 people to 2 million people over a couple of years. When? In the coming, 20s? In the 20s, coming out of the pandemic. No way. Yeah. So you, so that- Because why? Fear? Fear. So I'm not saying that zoning created the KKK. No, of course. It's just a <laughs> Although there's byproduct. A, yeah. But if you look at the, the tension, the cultural tension- that came out of the last pandemic as our cities were going through great change. The KKK is a fear-based, erroneous organization. It is. And it really took hold 
a couple of years coming out of the last pandemic. Anyone can research it. That was the big spike in their membership. So, you know, there's our, it came out of this cultural tension as our cities continued to grow and our cities really started to take off coming out of that pandemic as people fled to cities to try and find a better living environment. And there was very rapid change that happened then, very rapid urban cultural change. And now you bring in zoning. Uh, and at that time, I would argue zoning was designed to do as much good as harm. The unintended harm um, in some people's mind, and, in, and some would say that it was fully intended in terms of creating segregation. And I would say it did. So there's parts of zoning that I agree with in its origins and parts that I don't. That's just my personal opinion. And so you fast forward 100 years later, and I look at the cultural tensions that is going on now in our cities, coming out of a pandemic, in an economic revolution, in a recession, which no one wants to admit that we are, but we are. I'll admit it. Right? Yeah. And I believe you. I believe everything you say. And the um, get-rich-quick scheme in the 1920s, uh, coming out of the roaring 20s, was the 1929 Great Depression. Right? Everyone put money into a stock market that was artificially inflated and it collapsed. I'm not saying that that's happened here, but the fact that there were things propping up an economy, which we had to go through, which for us, the un the unfortunate consequence has been inflation and a recession and supply chain issues for a whole bunch of reasons. That it was something similar that came out again in the last pandemic. And so I gave a talk a year ago at the World City Conference online, uh, sorry, a year and a half ago, six months ago in person, that said, watch what happened in 1929 and the rapid change that came into our cities out of the last pandemic and that we are bound for something similar if we're not careful. And I think people knew that there was going to be some sort of big economic adjustment. So if you draw a line under that last five minutes of my soliloquy, you see that there's great urban cultural tension and a lot of change that's coming to our cities. People moving to different parts of neighborhoods, people struggling for work. There's inflation issues. It's hard for people to get by. Uh, we're coming out of a, in, of a deadly pandemic. We have uh, social regulation and health regulation that came out of the last two years. And we're entirely different as a species, not biologically, but how we, how we live, how we think, the things that we fear, all of that that there's been massive behavioral change that has hit the entire globe. And so of course that's gonna impact the way our cities grow. And so the tension that we saw in 2018 in our cities, which was around land use and growth and development and population growth in our cities, because like the urban population, the global population in the Western world in cities is around 60, 65%. I think by 2050, it's gonna be probably closer to 70, two out of three people in the world are going to be living in cities, probably higher. And all that change coming through rapidly. People aren't leaving our cities to flee 
way out to the outskirts. I'm you got to compound those numbers with the actual population increase too, not just the proportion living in cities. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And with strong immigration numbers that are anticipated in many Western world countries. And so that that is also a big part of that urban migration. It's not just people moving from rural areas of our province into our cities. It's people moving from rural areas and developing countries into the Western world. That has been happening since the last pandemic and it accelerated in the 40s and 50s and has not slowed down. In fact, it's picking up. So the pressure on our cities, and if you bring it back to Vancouver, a global city with historically a strong regional civic economy, that that attraction is going to be there. Canada is also a very appealing country for immigrants to move to. And so the it's a very complicated answer to your question about is zoning good or bad? And so you have to peel it back to it being more than just a regulatory instrument that is implemented today to control development or no development, that type of thing. And so I like context because I think it's a much more rounded story and argument to structure if I can look into why this instrument was created in the first place, number one. So if we understand that, and the good and bad that comes from it. And we can just admit it. And then number two, just take a snapshot of what is going to be happening in our cities over the next 10 years that we have a chance of getting ahead of it. So I'm not advocating that cities just um, open up city hall and say yes to everything. Uh, there is a regulatory function. I think the pendulum has swung to over-regulation. It's very similar to what happened in the last pandemic because the thinking around zoning back then and even today, and I said earlier that it is a function of public policy and zoning is where that sort of implementation, the rubber hits the road, right? The hammers and nails and concrete and construction, it's all coming in a, out of a zoning page. What you can build, what you can't build. But it comes out of policy and that policy represents a public interest. And that public interest from a, health perspective, land use perspective, socio-political perspective has become highly regulated to a point where some cities uh, have gone to a point of over-regulation. So it's like, what side of change do you want to be on? That's, that's really the question. And I think taking a rear view mirror approach, some of our cities have, has, has been a challenge. What is, what is that? What is a rear view mirror approach? Planning cities for yesterday. Uh, right? Our zoning and policy. You can spend four years working on a policy or five years starting today with research that is based in today. But by the time you implement it, it's done. So in a rapidly changing urban environment with cultural, sociopolitical tensions, there's going to be issues between the two. I get it. But I'm on the side of change. I'm on the side of positive change. And I would rather do something than nothing. The easiest thing is to sit back and not lead this rapid change that our cities are going to go through. The easy thing is to say no. And so I have a good friend of mine, um, Sonia Trous in San Francisco. She used to be with the Bay 
Area Renters Federation. I think she's with um, a YIMBY organization now. One of the first and most influential pro-housing advocates in North America. And in my mind, he's become a great uh, a great leader, a great political leader in, in that way. And so she, she did a few talks here in Vancouver. And one of the things that Sonia said was, I don't see why, I don't understand why cities have to overregulate. I see ugly people walking on the street all the time. <laughs> ugly buildings should be allowed also. <laughs> why does everything and everyone always have to be so pretty? So not everyone can be as pretty as Cam Good, I guess is kind of what it is. <laughs> Other people are allowed to be around. People like me. I'm not as pretty as Cam Where's Good. Where's your bow tie, by clothes. the way? I, I don't get the bow tie? This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you dress down to a regular tie? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Let the record show for everyone listening out there. I'm still totally decked out in Gary Poo. I got Gary Pooney socks on right now. I got socks with my face on them. Yeah, you do. I'm known, I'm known, I'm known for a... F- few things um what do you think they are besides professional stuff the socks the glasses oh man i had uh i had a client of mine who introduced me at a talk once and everywhere in my bio where it said real estate or development replaced it with fashion (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i don't know i just clothes are my thing that's cool yeah but for and not only dressing well uh Vancouver Magazine, Power 50, you know, named most powerful people in real estate in stories and, and very uh, various sort of publications. But for those of you who don't follow our industry closely, um, explain to people the perspective you're sharing, where it comes from. What is Who do you work for and what is it that you do, your company? So our, our company has been around in a few different iterations as a land development consulting firm. So what is that? It's uh, for major, actually, let me take a step back. So I'll, uh, what'd you say, dumb it down? We are, we're part marriage counselors. <laughs> where City Hall and a developer aren't getting along. We are brought in to intervene. We're kind of like the Marines or Navy SEALs that kind of come in uh, at the very end and get a, dirty job done on the real estate side, you know, secure a beachhead, you know, secure some enemy territory, take in 12 people and eight people make it out alive. And no one knows that we were there. You know, (laughs) I have heard you described as the secret weapon. (laughs) Well, uh, that's an overstatement. I would just go for secret. (laughs) The other part's okay. So we, um, and I think those who know me well know that we have a sense of humor and I sometimes refer to ourselves as a, as a city hall laxative. That's <laughs> what we are. <laughs> when you're, you're Do you project, tell them that? Oh, yeah, why not? You know, your project is plugged or something's clogged in the pipeline at city hall and you need a expediter. You need a real estate laxative. That's kind of what we do. But we're urban planners for hire. So there's a technical rezoning policy planning part that our firm does. That's one part. Number two is there's a lot of work in the public. And there's two parts of that. There's public engagement where it's a part of your development application. And then there's just leading some positive conversation about your development projects. That's part two. Then there's a political part because we are in the court of political approvals. 
So there's a political part to the work that anyone has to take on, whether it's a developer or us. So our role, we're, we're quite malleable and um, we're brought in to help negotiate good development projects through an approvals process. Usually hired by the developer. Most of the time, yes, directly by the developer. 99 times out of 100. There's other work that we do for for agencies that might require some other real estate advice, but mostly we're an extension of a developer directly. And were you consulting with the NDP? Consulting with them? Yeah. Uh, I remember it was a big deal that you weren't invited to the uh, inauguration or whatever of, you know, David Eby. No. Oh, I was invited? You were not. No, I was. Oh, you were? I was there. <laughs> oh, did I, yeah. Oh, you weren't invited, but you showed up anyway. No, 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 no. I was, I was invited. People made a, some people made a big deal that I was there, actually. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm remembering. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And I think probably you and I were joking. I was like, I wasn't there because I know you weren't there. <laughs> I wasn't. But uh, I think it was probably just horsing around with you. Yeah, I am, um, I would say I'm one of the few people in the real estate industry that um, understood what this version of the NDP was trying to do. I'm uh, I was a big fan of John Horgan and his government. I thought he was an incredible leader. I thought he is an, uh, I know he is, he's an outstanding person. And uh, things that anyone should look for in an elected official or a politician, regardless of party stripes, is that they're doing it for the right reasons. And I would say that Premier Horgan was doing it all for the right reasons. I think the legacy that he has created for uh, pro-business, but also around social equity resonates with a lot of people. Hey, plus I grew up in New Westminster, you know, I think, I think I was born with orange diapers, probably. <laughs> it's an NDP town. My dad was a part of Teamsters and was a, was a truck driver. And, uh, and being in a very blue collar family, growing up on a farm in Queensboro, uh, it, it was the union and, and an extension of the NDP that would make sure that my dad was doing okay in his job. And in fact, when he was being forced into some early retirement, coerced into some early retirement. It was a union that stepped up uh, against some of the other truck drivers and said, no, uh, he should still be allowed to, to make a living. So it's, um, that's probably some of the historical connection. He didn't want to retire? No, he didn't. I think at that time he was just hitting 60 and was top of the union as a, as a driver at that time. And, and the younger up-and-comers but didn't have the union uh, seniority. Seniority, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Want them gone. So, yeah, why you know why would you at that time? You have a truck that's paid off and hopefully a mortgage that is getting close. And, you know, for working families, it's at that time, you might make money towards the end of your, towards the end of your career. But I, uh, yeah, I grew up with some, I might not dress like it now, but I, I uh, it's just a costume. I'm a farm boy plaid wearing pickup truck driving Bruce Springsteen fan. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, that's, that's how I grew up. So, you know, when you're contemplating your life in a very blue collar borderline poor family and having to work a farm, 
to grow your own food to get by and seeing your uncles and aunts and your siblings and other cousins all kind of struggling the same way you hope and want for more equity. And so the only sort of more social equity. So you grew up like that in the West and then how did you, what did you do? how did you get into doing what you do now? Oh, okay. Here's the story for you. Um, uh, okay. I want to, I'm going to, I've, I've never, I've shared this privately with a few friends, but since you are a friend and there's only a handful sitting here, I'm going to pretend I'm just talking to you about this. So, uh, there's a bit of a story here. So my, my dad, like every other blue collar male at that time, Friday hits and he would go down and grab a bottle of rye and go down to the liquor store in Westminster down at the, uh, the old Columbia square, uh, location in new West, which actually coincidentally, we're working on a big rezoning application for Peter Edgar there right now. And, uh, so my dad goes in and there's, there's a table that a woman would sell lottery tickets outside. So my brother and I would head down with my dad and just give us something to do. And, and, uh, so my dad picks up two lottery tickets. They were five bucks each spends his 10 bucks. And, uh, this is when the old super lotto and provincial lottery where the numbers were written on the outside of the ticket and they're all there in sequence. So the woman at the table had three tickets left. My dad buys two and she says, I'm only just take all three. I've only got three left. And I was like, no, I'll just take two. And this is a time of peak oil, um, crisis, tough recession in the eighties. We locked in at a 19 and a half percent interest on our um, interest rate for our mortgage. And it was, it was a seriously tough time. Go home. My dad, my uncle, my aunt, my mom, my sister were watching the lottery draw and my dad missed the million dollar ticket by one number. Are you saying it was that ticket he left? The ticket he left at the table was a million dollar ticket. No. So my brother and I, who were younger, we hear this screaming and my dad rips up this piece of paper slash cardboard, throws something on the ground and we come running down in our little crappy house in New West and we're like, what happened? What happened? And the response was, go back upstairs, go to bed. And uh, so that was it. So it was really tough for my dad to get past that, and, you know, being a poor family at that time and said, you know what, we're in for some really tough times. There's this farmland in Queensboro, we're going to buy it. We'll go back to doing what the family had to do in India. At least we'll be able to grow food if we're hungry. So we did. I was 11 years old and we moved to this farm in Queensboro. So it's in the Hamilton area. I keep calling it Queensboro because it's, it, it doesn't really make a difference. It's just a few steps in to the very East Richmond side of, um, of that part of Lou Island. So, uh, you know, we, we, uh, tore down the house that was there and built a new house. Well, we tore down half the house. Actually. I remember my dad went out to army and Navy, picked up a couple of crowbars. I'll never forget. They were 99 cents. I got one. My brother got one said, all right, the family's going to tear down this old shack of a house. So we did until my uncle fell through the roof and fell about 10, 15 feet. Uh, it was okay. And I'm like, what are we doing trying to tear down a house? So my dad told, tells everyone to go home, waits till twilight. 
And since we didn't have neighbors nearby, uh, he said, uh, all right, boys, we're just going to burn the rest of the house down. So he did. <laughs> like, that's pretty fun for an 11 year old. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm pretty scary. When your old man says, hey, yeah, we're just going to burn this house down. We're going to build a new one on top of it. I, I'll never forget the fire department showed up. And uh, and my dad runs out into the driveway with his hands up. And he's just like, hey, let it go, guys. Let it go. <laughs> just let it burn. So it did. So that, that became our land. We farmed it and built a house and stayed there. And um, so my dad valued land. And he was in the construction industry as a dump truck driver. And, and never forgot about having missed his lottery ticket. So on top of that, he liked going to the horse races with with his buddies. It became a social thing for him to do. Uh, he just, one day, uh, he doesn't come home, I remember, till midnight. And wondering what had happened, because he just shows up with my mom yelling at him. And he just started throwing a bunch of money down on the table. And we're like, what just happened? He laid a $20 bet on six horses and nailed the sweep six. One about wow. 80, one about 80 grand at that wow. time. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't a million dollars, but something came out of it. But you know what he did? We went and bought the farmland that was next door to us that was going up for sale and he bought a brand new truck. He said, okay, this kind of gives us a bit of a head start. We'll just buy some more land. I'm not kidding you. Within two years, we had realtors knocking on our door asking if we would sell our land. All of it? All of it. Just unsolicited offers. And, uh, and I was like, no, we're not interested. And he said to me, because I was a teenager at this time, mm, probably in around grade 11, grade 12, something like that. I'm going somewhere with this story, by the way. So he said, uh, go to City Hall and see what's going on. I've been in this industry too long as a truck driver working in construction. Something's up. And what had happened is... Uh, like there's too many realtors coming here. Too many people want to go out. Why? Let's find out. It's Yeah, exactly. There's a young good Cam instinct. Good. A young Cam Good knocking on our door saying, hey, I'll buy your swamp land off of you. And um, the land had been redesignated in the OCP from farmland to multifamily. So that piqued my curiosity about this process that changes land from one designation to another, there's a value that's created in it, and then ultimately leads to work for someone like my dad. So that got me interested in that process. And as I got into university, I thought I was gonna be going into law school, would have been the most overdressed lawyer in history, <laughs> and uh, but fell in love with geography and the way that our cities were shaped. I'll never forget what happened to our land. and. And these four acres of land, four to five acres of land that we had after its redesignation got sold out in pieces and chunks where my dad did better than winning a lottery ticket. Amazing. It also taught me very early on the value of hard work. Um, I've also earned the right to poke fun at all these community gardeners and urban farmers. And I'm like, oh man, you have no idea how hard this is doing it every day on a, on several acres. Cause you did it. Yeah, I did it. It was very tough work. Uh, so I yeah, worked there and I actually had to work as a laborer during the summer as a paid laborer on another farm. So I did all that. So that is the story of how I got interested in this whole process and got introduced into 
rezoning. It's probably a, some sort of like comic book that you could do. I was just going to say, it's something a like this. Good origin story. story. <laughs> yeah, it's a I good mean, OG the pain story. Of, for your dad with 19.5% home mortgage rate, oh, man, you missing that million up. bucks All would have that. fixed everything, you know, yeah. and, and the pain that he had that uh, eventually through what, you figured out you and he figured out with what's going on with the city and rezoning yeah that was fixed by that experience that makes a huge impression on a teenager oh for sure and uh and you know what i go back so my dad passed away in 2015 and at the end of may very suddenly at a young age and anybody with with immigrant parents or or any very difficult blue collar working family with either parent mother or father I, you know, that generation, they're cut from a different cloth. They really are. I mean, they martyr themselves. So you and I can sit here on your fancy couch and, uh, and speak into microphones and talk. They would have never imagined things like this for us. And so the, the labor and the work that they went through in order for us to have a upper middle class life uh, you know, I don't think that they would have ever expected something like this. So, you know, at that time work for them was just a survival mechanism, right? So, and I'm sure every family has some OG story like that. And if you can stay true to who your family was, the influences in your life, your belief system, and if you can bring some of that into your career, particularly when you're working in real estate, there's a lot of work that we do in the community. A lot of work that I personally do in the community. And I do it because I, I know that the effect that it had when people helped me and my family when we weren't able to. And I haven't forgotten those people. So if you can bring some of that belief system into your career, whatever it might be, particularly in a career that can be lucrative in real estate, then I think you've got something. You don't have to love your job. You don't have to show up and say, hey, I love my job and I haven't worked a day in my life. I don't think that exists for most people. I think you can really like it. I don't think you need to love it because there's going to be times that you hate it. But if it's, if you believe in it, I think that's a secret. So with everything that I've gone through in my life, in my career and watch my family struggle through and to get to a point where I can make a career, employ people, help my community, and do good by my kid, then, you know, I think, I think you've made it in real estate. I think that's a bones for, for a great career. I wonder if that your origin story, your perspective makes it feel good about the rezoning process in some ways, the wealth that it creates for the, for the owners. Uh, yeah, I like that there, you know, my first big payday for a client was in Alberta. I lived, I went to grad school in Calgary and there was a client there that had some farmland. It cost them a couple hundred grand of their own money to get it redesignated and rezoned into this, into this sort of mixed use commercial residential complex near Lake Chestermere, right on the lake actually. And they got an offer the next morning of $20 million on a piece of dirt they bought for a few hundred grand. Wow. Uh, that felt pretty good. I felt, I felt great for them. I mean, I would have loved to have had a piece of it, but I didn't. <laughs> hey, so the other thing you go through in this career is if you feel envy, 
Don't do this. Don't do this job. <laughs> <laughs> like the stuff, uh, either as a developer or, you know, on the consulting side, like you and me, yeah, you know, our job is, is to make other people happy and you make them money and we make a little bit at the same time. And if you're bringing a forward, some positive change in a community or neighborhood, then great. But man, if you've just feel envy, what a terrible emotion to have in this career. <laughs> you're not gonna oh, make, yeah. You won't make it past your first deal. Totally. Oh. I totally agree. Mm. So now are you a lobbyist, would you say? You know, I hate that term because it's, uh, there's just this real strange, slimy picture behind it. But do we have to lobby government to do the right thing in our mind for our projects? Yes, we do. It's one part of what we do. And how long are your engagements? It must be, it last for years sometimes. They can. Uh, we can take on a master plan that will take four years, five years. Uh, we started working on Oak Ridge Center with West Bank back in 2014. Here we are in 2023 and we're still working on it. At that time, we ran a campaign called Oak Ridge 2025 because we thought it was going to be built by then. Wow. Yeah, we're still still working on tinkering that. You know, it's, you know, you're eight to 10 years into a process on a master plan. It's going to change. And so you you need to make sure that the changes keep up with whatever the market is looking for. So the engagements that come to us, for example, Gary, we got a public hearing at council in two weeks and it doesn't look like it's going to go well. Which is why they're calling you. Yeah, the community hates us and city hall hates us. Can you come in and fix it? We're not gonna do that. It's too late, it's too late. So this lobbyist image, um, in my mind is similar to a role like that, which is something we would not take on. There's a difference between being a lobbyist and then having to lobby. I get that. Like right. a lobbyist in the dirty connotation is a political lobbyist who are in the uh, closed door meeting room making shady deals. That's it. That yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. And you know what? I wish it was that easy. I think there's a lot of community groups out there that say Pooney is just a lobbyist and and he's throwing money or donations at X, Y, and Z, and, and this is how things happen. Boy, I wish it was that easy. If it was that easy, I'd be retired a long time ago. It's not. Well, how not easy is it? Like when you're hired for the proper engagement in a year or more in advance, what do you do? Well, it doesn't matter what elected official you talk to. If you're spraying perfume on a piece of crap, no one's going to believe it. Increase a piece of crap project, you mean? Yeah. 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 It's just not going to work. So if you're, if you're rooted in, and then and nobody is going to, at a city hall, say yes to a project just because our team is working on it. I would like to profess that and say that it's true, but that's not how it works. And the best negotiations, whether it's your firm, Cam, or mine, comes from a point of honesty. And uh, so those, in my mind, are the best negotiations. So each major development project, particularly the city of Vancouver, is a negotiation. So that is the sort of secret, I think, skill that a lot of people would have to learn. And you need a volume of work to have gone through and a volume of negotiations to go through where you can draw upon some experience. That, that part is stronger in my mind than lobbying. 
And um, I also would say that we, through our work in the community, have incredible depth of relationships with people in our city and in our region. And so if you're doing things in a community for the right reason, and this blue collar beginnings, working class family, looking for a savior and hero, you kind of develop a little bit of a Superman complex and wanting to help everyone and everything. And so strangely, and by no intentional design, there's just a lot of amazing people that we have met in our region and especially in this city and in my hometown, my former hometown of New West, which allows us to have some socio-political capital. So I think that's more valuable than just being a lobbyist. Do this just because the Pune group asked you to do this. I wish it was true. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. And what is the, what is the battle out there? Is it the NIMBYs, which for people who don't know is not in my backyard, the sentiment of like, yeah, yeah, we're all for development, but not near where I live. Is it them versus the developer, I guess, and whoever they can get you to help them get organized to balance that out? Yeah. I would say for the last 20 years, that's what it's been. Something is changing. I think when you look at the new city council group that's in Vancouver, they platformed on change. And I would say that they are onto something. And I think that they understand that there is a new demographic power that is starting to take over our cities. What is it? And that's the millennials. The millennial presence, and you and I are not millennials, we looked at them and would speak about millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z uh, the same way that boomers would talk about our generation. So I, um, when I look at the economic power in North America, where millennials outnumber boomers by somewhere just, I believe it's around 20 million. And they are, millennials are also the largest economic power in North America right now and their economic influence bigger than any other group. Why? Because their number, obviously they're they yeah. have the spending power. They, as, as a group, they have the spending power as individuals. They do not as individuals. They do not, but their group in terms of numbers and size has grown quite big. They are also incredibly politically active, climate change, social equity, indigenous rights, and there is a, there's a different sociocultural presence that they have that is now married with an economic power. So, uh, and they are hitting the stride, a big stride in their careers. And they elected Ken Sim and the new leadership in Vancouver? Uh, well, I think, I think that party was largely led by them, by the mayor for four years that just went off and met people. And I, I don't think there was a big secret. And there were people around his campaign were, who were incredibly bright, but the, um, the ability that he and the three incumbent counselors, when they joined his party, I think they have a great strength in connecting with people in this city. And you can see it where as a mayor candidate, he took out an incumbent mayor with more 
votes than any city of Vancouver mayor in history. And he was not even the incumbent. So you have to be doing something right. No doubt. You've made a lot of friends in the city that way. So a platform that was based on change, I think, spoke to where this city is headed. So your question was around NIMBYism. And I would say over 20 years that that was really out there. And I'm seeing less of that. That hot spot is starting to shrink. What do you mean by that? That the war is ending? No, I would say that the the circle and ripple effect that they created is getting smaller. They being the millennials? No, no, the the NIMBY groups. The NIMBY groups. A, a really? group of people that are opposed to a development project because the millennial group and the people wanting change is starting to get bigger. I see. It's starting to get bigger. So an analogy would be when my, my father passed away in 2015, like I said earlier, and anyone who has lost someone close to them in their life, there is a grief bubble, a grief circle that is always a certain size. And, but you cannot take happiness. Your happiness bubble is like a dot within that grief circle. And over time, the happiness bubble grows, but the grief stays the same. So in a strange analogy, I would say that you have a, a center of a hot plate that is um, a similar circle, people just not wanting any change, none at all. And there's nothing you will, it's like religion and politics, and there's nothing you can do to change someone's mind. You don't talk about religion, politics, or real estate at the dinner table with strangers anymore, right? <laughs> you just can't. And uh, say, if people look at you and you tell a stranger that you work in real estate, like, oh yeah, well, you're the fucking problem, Cam, right? <laughs> you're, you're the reason everything is so unaffordable. And um, so that there is a population that says, hey, particularly in the city of Vancouver, pull up the drawbridge, we've had enough, uh, people need to go elsewhere. And we've had our fair share. I'm not on that side. I'm on the side of our cities can continue growing and evolving and changing like they have over the last 150 years here and continue getting better. I'm on that side of change. So a, a city- And so are the millennials. Yes. Of course they are. This huge growing group. And they value different things. And I think you'll see it in the in the in the marketplace. They they may rent, they might own something small, but they value recreation, they value lifestyle, they value culture. Uh I'm sure everyone would love to have a single family home at at some point, but I think that there is a stronger urban environment that they've come to accept, which is downtown Vancouver's strength. I'm not, I'm not, there's people that raise families in, in downtown Vancouver. It may not be as big as the suburbs, but they certainly are starting families here. And so we're doing something right. We're doing something right. And, and I think that uh, there is a stronger voice of change and a wave that is coming. And it's not just going to be developers saying, we need to create more supply because that's going to fix everything. That's, that's not true either. There's a room for regulation. There's room for building. There's some healthy tension that happens in most of the other cities. It's a, it's a very different approval environment in the city of Vancouver than, than, than other places. So you've had other people come in your podcast, and I'm sure some have vented a lot more than, than I have. And so there's a lot of stress. Right? There's a lot of stress that's coming to our cities. There's a lot of stress that's in our industry. And, and when I look around and see this 
stress and tension. I'm worried about the people that are working in our industry and, and particularly young people that are, that are just coming up. You know, they're going to see a very tough year ahead. I think we need to be really clear about that. But this industry is, does not head on an endless trajectory upwards. There's peaks and valleys. And so we're, we're going to get through this and, and there will be good times, but not right now. And so, um, when it comes to stress and tension, there's a public service announcement that I like to give and it's around, it's about working in this industry. So on November 3rd, 2019, just a little over three years ago, I had a massive heart attack. I went into cardiac arrest by the time I got into a hospital and where were you when it happened? I was at the gym. I was at the gym of all places. So I had, I was not, I was not feeling well, right? The, I was working about 65, 70 hours a week. Why so much? You were expanding geographically, right? Yeah. So I had an office in Toronto. I was, there was a soccer academy whose head office was in New York. I was helping out with that. We had some work in Calgary. We're just starting with our Victoria office at the time. So as a, as a consulting firm, uh, we were getting known and popular. So you're your thinking is to just continue growing like that. Plus work out, plus be a good dad, plus, plus, plus. Oh, plus everything, right? It's just like, when it comes to like soccer and hockey schedules on the weekends, I'm sure there's some parents out there looking forward to coming to work on Monday, just to have a break. <laughs> <laughs> right? Sleeping your old. Yeah. So, so I, um, and I, I, to be honest with you, I, th I was bringing this immigrant work mentality that I, that I saw, you know, I, I took Make great parents proud. Yeah. Great work ethic that my father had and this incredible kindness of my mother. She's the kindest person that I know, kindest person I've ever met. So I was able to do philanthropic work and work really hard at the same time, you know, while, while raising a young family. So, uh, there was a year that I was just not feeling well and the decline was pretty quick. I went to the doctor a few times to get checked out and kept telling me that I was okay. And, uh, um, what did not feeling good feel like just for anybody listening who might be feeling. Not yeah. Good. So here's the public service announcement. If you're, if you can work out, okay, where you're building up slowly for those of you who do exercise, but you get out of breath, just walking a block briskly, really quick, go get yourself checked. If, um, so let me be clear, you go to the gym, lift heavy weights, yeah. do like the usual kind of stuff, but then, then you're surprised when you had to huff it That's right. fast in a block and you're like, I'm more winded than I should be. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I, mean, I can see your wheels turning, <laughs> huh. you know, you can look like you're in good shape, but you just don't know what's going on inside. And so I, um, I had that, a a genetic condition of a very hyperactive liver, which was my body was producing its own cholesterol, which becomes plaque and hardens when under physical stress, like lifting heavy things or um, with, with mental stress, right? With our industry. So that's my specific case. But if you are not feeling well or feeling that something is off in terms of being out of breath, or even by the time you hit 40, just go get a regular checkup, go get a stress test, get a baseline. There's nothing wrong with that because the number of people today in their thirties and forties that are having significant cardiac issues, it's at an all time high. 
So for me, it wasn't just a heart attack on November 3rd, 2019. I went into cardiac arrest. I died for almost four minutes in ER as they were trying to get me ready for surgery. And I was in a coma for two days after they got a heartbeat back and were able to get me through uh, and to get a big stent put in. The main artery reached my heart was 100% blocked. I was getting no blood or oxygen. It's a miracle that I'm alive. They said I had a 0.1% chance of survival. Wow. So it's, you know, and so the, the point is this, there's going to be stress in our industry and tension, whether it's this coming year or for those making a long-term career in real estate. It's not easy. We talked about a whole bunch of things that make make it very difficult. I would not want anybody or their family to go through what I went through. And it was a massive wake up call for me. I basically, I died and came back and it's a miracle that I came back. And the last thing I saw was the look of fear on my son's face as my eyes faded to black. And I, for a moment, heard the flat line of the monitor go off and said to myself, fight this. Whoa. And I woke up two days later to remember it with a sore chest, broken ribs, having been out of surgery and survived. So I don't want anyone to go through this. Kidding. You know, right? It's, it's, uh, every day is a happy day to be alive and cherish the people that are around you because this industry takes up a lot of your time. And that's the one thing that can't be replaced. So when you're talking about how long your approvals take, you're talking about how difficult the market is. You're still earning a career in a very good industry. There's no excuse for not being able to take care of yourself at the same time and keeping things in perspective. Most people who are smart, do well in this industry, are going to be okay in the coming year. Most people. And if you're not, you're going to rebound. And things are going to be okay. So in the meantime, please, everyone, take care of yourself. You're not feeling well. Don't let everyone say that you're doing okay. There's nothing wrong with getting your baseline health analyzed. Make sure that you're okay and that you're around for a long time because I almost was not. You're a changed man, I can tell. Oh, yeah? 100%. Well, yeah, you've known me for a while. I'm just happy to be around. Yeah. It's just being here to be able to speak with you about my thoughts on this industry and in my life. Three years ago, just over three years ago, I wouldn't have had that chance. Right. So I wake up every morning just happy to be around. That's a pretty good starting point every morning. That's amazing. Yeah. You're so zen. I mean, there, there's so much, so much pressure and so much tension in this industry and you're in the fight every day of your professional life. Yeah. And I thought you would want to talk about, you know, what's working, what's not working, you know, all the politics and, and planning and rezoning and all the bullshit, frankly. Um but you're kind of a Zen master. You're oh. kind of at peace with the whole thing. Yeah. I'm also super drunk right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am different, Cam. You've known me a long time and I feel different, right? I, I, um, I take things in stride a little differently. There are moments where I do get wound up like I was earlier today. And it was just something I had to get done. It was a bit of a rush to, to complete it and coordinating with my team. That's no different than anybody else on any other day. Going to get through it. It'll be completed. 
And, you know, just like, you know, sometimes I, I, I joke with our, our long standing clients cam, which are, some of them are the same as, same as yours. And when the process is taking just a little bit too long, not when necessarily when they're getting screwed over and just taking a little bit too long. I'm like, look, it's okay. You're just a little bit less rich today. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's wake up tomorrow and see if we can gain some new perspective on this. Uh, you know, we, we, we lost some money on it, but let's, let's see if we can make something up tomorrow. And there's no good decisions you make on sending out an email at 10 PM or 11 PM. <laughs> Send out the same, same one the next morning with a clearer head and you'll get some new perspective on it. There's an example I, I would say of how, how I hope that I have, I have changed. I've also, um, when you are very public facing in our industry and the work that we do is very public facing. And I would say that I'm having to be more public facing than other people in their careers. You become a bit of an introvert. And uh, so being invited to do something like this, I've also met some great people over the course of the past few years while I've been in recovery uh, who have been unconditional friends and good people to me. And so one of the things that I value most about this industry is the relationships and the friends that I've made, uh, because I nurture that a lot more. Don't need to have a lot of them, but I, the ones that I adore, I will keep close to me. That's one of the most rewarding things of having had my career is some amazing people that I was around before my medical issues and how they rallied around me after that. I appreciate their loyalty. I appreciate their friendship. It's people like Ian Gillespie at West Bank, right? He put all of their projects we were working on on hold until I was well enough to come back. He wouldn't have done that. You know, Ali Tarani and David Buttle from Prima Properties showed up my first day back in the office with a t-shirt that said, I'm back. That's you know, cool. Yeah. Carrie and Dino Bonas, right? They're just always checking in on me and see how I'm doing. Peter Edgar, because I couldn't drive for six months, set up, set me up with a driver cool. uh, because I wasn't able to get around. You know, those are the people that you want to work for. Yeah. Right. Those are the people that you'd be loyal to in, in, in an industry like this. And you, Cam, have been a friend of mine for a long time. And we've bonded more over health stories and life. Uh, than we have over real estate, really. And uh, uh, you are good. Cam, yeah, good. <laughs> you are a good guy. And, uh, you know, there's a personal value that you have. And there's a brand that you have as a good person. You're a good guy. There's your new tagline. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's great working with you but it's even better being your friend because i appreciate your your loyalty and your humility and one of the first things you usually check in on when we see each other is around my health i just want you to know i appreciate that very much thank you i really appreciate you sharing it because we have a there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening a lot of people 
burning their boats on the beaches, just grinding hard, whether it's in real estate or, or leading another company in a different Are you sure industry. about that? Did you tell them that it's me? There's not like only five people out there listening right now. <laughs> well, there were a lot listening, but that they may have stopped by now. Uh, but yeah. there were a lot. No, but I'm, but I'm, oh, I'm not they really. All, they're all getting their hearts checked out by their doctors right now. I hope so. Yeah. You know, I once heard a talk from... Um, a very good speaker who was a woman whose husband was was an entrepreneur, just given her burn the piano both ends, died too young. And she developed a talk about this, about taking care of yourself. It basically sounded like something like this. You, you idiots, you think you're invincible. You think you can just push as hard as you can for as long as you can. And there's not going to be any consequences. And I'm here to tell you that there are. And here's what they are. And I've never forgotten it. I get chills even just saying that to you because it... It just brings back the feelings I had when I heard it. And um, you being so open and honest and vulnerable about your experience, you know, not pretending to be Superman. Uh, it's good for people to hear. I like hearing it and lots of other people will too. How has it changed your leadership style within your own company? Oh man, I, I probably have an answer and my team probably has another answer. Um, I let go of certain things and... Uh, I give a lot of credit to the senior management in my team that took charge when I was on leave. They run most of the company on a day-to-day -day basis. So my role has changed where I have been able to cherry pick the funnest parts of the job, the ones where I can be the most effective. And it's, uh, so I work less. I brought in an no overtime policy in the office and want people to head home. Don't want them working weekends. Uh, and if they do, it's, it's compensated, but I would say 90% no overtime. I would rather people get home to their families and their partners because you can't make up more time. The work will come and go. And, uh, and if people are having to work, 11, 12 hour days, then we, we should be hiring more people, not demanding more from the existing team. So I would say that those are some positive changes. I became extremely introverted and actually spent a lot less time with my team, to be very honest with you. Uh, you know, dying can give you some PTSD right? and then coming back. And uh, just want to be with family. Yeah. You know, it's just your family, your friends, and, uh, and then even in your own head, to be honest with you, because you will, and if the whole other podcast will be what's on the other side, what did you see? And, uh, there was, I didn't see a red guy with horns and a bunch of fire saying, Hey, come down here. <laughs> I didn't see people flying around in white robes with harps playing and halos. Uh, but I felt something. And so, you know, I'm kind of having some fun trying to figure that out. So you, you, you go through a life altering experience like this. You want to figure out what, what else is there so that there's a personal change that I've, that I've gone through that I really welcome. So I kind of get caught in my own head, but, uh, you, you do become more introverted when that happens. And so while I was in recovery for a few years, I was, I was pretty withdrawn and I'm just starting to, to I save went down. I'm just starting to come back out of that shell a little bit. So there's good change and bad change.
I, uh, I also have no problem talking about my feelings, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing that comes out of Silver it. lining. Yeah. Like I, uh, and also on a work side from a management side, because, because of what I went through, um, I just find it easier just calling things out for what they are and just not wasting time. Yeah. Time and value right. it. Yeah. So I think you just helped me as my pseudo counselor right now, articulate in my own head, if I had to bring it down to what, what is the one thing that is changing in me the most, it's my thinking of time. That's the biggest difference. You took it for granted before, like everybody else. And now you don't. Yeah. Black and white. That's right. Binary. Even though it was 20 minutes late showing up here, but that's, <laughs> that's how much I valued something else that was going on before I got here. Yeah. That's okay. By the way, I also, uh, I think it's okay to have a bit of a sense of humor too. It is. You gotta enjoy life, man. Yeah. And I'm frankly so happy that you don't take it all too seriously. I mean, uh, Widely known, most one of the most powerful people in real estate and big business all over, and uh, and you joke about it and take it quite lightly and see it for what it is. And hey, man, I'm. It's funny that you say that because I still my see I still see myself as I'm the kid of Indian immigrants from a farm in Queensboro. Um, in my core, I'm still I'm still that same guy, and so I. Uh, when you say things like that, I, uh, to hear it articulated, I still don't think you're talking about me. And, uh, there's difference between power and influence, I guess. And I think, I think I'd rather have be seen as having some positive influence, which you've always stated every time that we get together that you think, think I do, which is super humbling. So thanks for that. If you had immense positive influence, if you were king of the world and were focused on, on your expertise and in, in sort of real estate, uh, planning, rezoning, um, and had superpowers and a magic wand. Oh man, you had me on that question before you start talking about real estate and rezoning. There's a whole bunch of, <laughs> forget all that other stuff. A whole bunch of other stuff I was going to do before you threw that in no, there. Forget the magic wand though. Sue. Okay. Like, cause you're a very realistic person. Yeah. So yeah. realistically, if you were um, king of the world, but had to deal with reality, what would be the best path forward, uh, from Gary Pooney's point of view? Uh, okay. what would be positive change? What would that oh, man, like? this, this sounds like a Miss Universe question or something. <laughs> it does actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> Someone Google that Miss South Carolina answer from a few years ago. I'm going to probably sound like that. Um, uh, so positive. Change. Okay. So there's two parts of it. One, one is a bit more idealistic and utopian and it's, and it's us as a people. Uh, but I have a friend of mine who's in a, who's in a rock band. Um, my, my buddy, Mikel and airborne toxic event, they've done some charity concerts for us here. And a few years ago, he, he had said to me, I just think a lot of things in this world could change if you just were nicer to each other, kindness. And so there's a value in kindness being kind. So that, that is, that's a lot to throw out there in terms of, uh, of an answer to your question, but it speaks to human behavior. So I think part of it is around human behavior and leading with kindness. And if we can do that and think that way, there's other stuff that comes out of it, 
if we leave with some kindness about what's happened in the downtown east side instead of just leaving it, if we lead with kindness around creating housing for everyone and that it's okay to have condos, it's okay to have higher end condos, it's okay to have rental housing, it's okay to have social housing. So there's an acceptance that comes from that. So I think part of it is if we had the ability to just change the way that we think in human behavior, that's the magic wand piece of it. The more practical side would be that those who need housing the most, our millennial population and younger, would become even more active in this conversation because there is a power that they bring and that they have and a political force and a relevance that they have now. Look at what they've done with climate change around the world and bringing that to the forefront. If they could get a bit more active and start creating some political change around a housing conversation in our industry, that would be one practical change that I would ask for. There's a lot that comes out of that. They could. I think they could. They're very tech savvy. Absolutely. Excellent they are. Communicators. Hey, we, we're getting away from doing in-person public open houses and in-person public meetings. Like if we will do one, if we are required to do one, other than that, we do it online. Yeah. We are getting through to way more people. It's better. Yeah. Like I come around to one of our public meetings before the pandemic. All I will say is that you could look around the room and the attendees generally look the same. Let's just leave it as that. Anyone in the industry would know what I'm talking about. And so we are getting out to more people, a diverse group of people, much better communication. Well, I'll say what you didn't want to say. They're probably a bunch of retired people who who appreciate some free coffee and donuts, not to be disrespectful, but also have the time at 7 p.m. on a Thursday evening to do that. And they likely own their home nearby. Yeah. Right? Totally. So they're at a point in their life where they don't need to have anyone else around them. Think of the timeline of some of these projects you work on. You talked about uh, oh, 2025, 5, 10 years. Imagine a 15-year-old speaking in this forum Yeah, I know. about what they would like to see when they're 20 or 25. Jeez. So now you're stressing me out and I'm going to have another heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> don't even joke. Yeah, I know, man. See? See what happened? I. Uh, it's tough. Right. There's, there's no, why do you feel stressed out by that? Cause you feel responsible to, to facilitate it. I'm stressed about, you know, I've got a 16 year old kid, so I'm stressed out about that generation and, and who's looking out for them. Cause the decisions that we're making now are completely screwing them over. That's my concern. What type of planet are they going to inherit? I know what my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation gave to me and what, I, and what I want to do with it. But there was, I was given an opportunity, right? An opportunity that they did not have. And there is going to be a planet and city and homes and neighborhoods that our kids and grandkids generations inherit that is going to be awful if we don't do something now. We're so far behind in this housing discussion. Compared to what? Compared to... Compared to like the nuclear arms race in the 80s, right? Where we had no problem creating weapons like that and spending money like crazy instead of doing other things. So, you know, it's, um, it's stuff like that. You know, it's, it's just, I, I don't want my grandkids' generation, my kids' generation, 
Some of them get by and some don't, but the ones after that, it's not, are they going to be able to live in Vancouver? Are they going to be able to be able to live in a proper home that was even constructed for them and where, right? Those types of things. The single family homes that were built a hundred years ago that went through that segregated zoning policy I spoke about are still up. They're still there, right? That model's broken. Someone has to break the wheel that drives this housing system. And I don't think it's going to be you and me, Cam. I think we are going to give this next generation the tools to be able to do it. That's probably the best that we can do. And they'll be way more effective at it. They'll be way more effective. And they are credible because they're the ones that are hurting from that. When you say that, it stresses me out. And it, my mind goes to supply. Yeah. Because of the population growth, this huge group of millennials you described earlier looking for set up homes, proper homes to start a family and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you say you don't even know if they'll have a place to live, but when, where are they going to live? I just don't see enough homes getting built. Uh, not right now. Not Is that what needs to break when you, if you're specific? Well, there's, um, yeah. So let me throw, I'll throw some suggestions out there. And like some of it is, some of it is exciting change and some of it is regulatory. So I, I agree with the province intervening on social housing. I don't understand why, why that has to go through a typical approvals system. And so I think there needs to be some intervention there and, and there has been. So there's got to be supply at that lowest rung of the ladder that needs to be created ASAP. So there's, that's, there's no silver bullet that is going to fix everything. Is it going to be a whole bunch of little things until we fill up the bucket? So that's one. I would say that some municipalities have a better regulatory environment. Again, we're getting to Vancouver centric discussion. Of course, Vancouver's fallen behind and it's housing targets. I think people at city hall would say, and the planners that I speak to and my counterparts in public sector here would say that they've done everything that they can. I don't, I don't think so. I don't agree with that. And, uh, because I see what all these other cities do. So there has to be some better oversight in, in that and a bit more uniformity with how municipalities govern when it comes to land use decisions. I guess Ontario is headed towards that with a bit of a tribunal and a different provincial body and a bunch of changes that they brought brought forward. And we'll see how that works because I haven't seen something like that before. So it's a bit of a trial there. So we need supply on, on all sides. And there's a responsibility that everybody needs to take instead of, uh, there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now. Right. There's, there's the public side is going to point fingers at the private side and the private side is going to point fingers the other way. It's, it's not, it's not super productive. Everyone's blaming everybody. So, uh, you're asking me what it would take to fix a housing supply issue. What would I, you do though? There's a bit of a difference for king of the world. No. Yeah. What back to that do? question. I was, uh, it's going to make everyone dress better. That was going to be the first thing, <laughs> but that doesn't really have to do with our industry. So, okay. Yeah. So the king of the world, Provincial. they're just, they're just, okay. So let's, let's, let's take this region. There just, there needs to be 
a ton more housing immediately. If you could snap your fingers and there would be housing immediately built in a number of vacant areas and a bunch of supply that was dropped with a healthy vacancy rate and a healthy absorption rate, that's where we need to be. And, and we're not. So that, that's one. I think I would also try and mum people, mute them when they say, well, what, what is the right type of supply of housing? And we need all of it. There is room for all of it. I was just going to ask you, should the private sector build or the public? But you'd say both. Both. Yeah. Both. I mean, you, you can't continue putting social housing pressures entirely onto the private industry. And so I, I, I think, I think our new premier is really trying to lead with a housing supply discussion and saying that we need more of all of it. And that's okay. Problem is this, um, we're so deep into an issue, right? That we're just starting to peel back and it's not something that's gonna fix immediately. It's probably a couple of building cycles. It's probably an eight year process. It's in there, unfortunately. But I would start off with helping the most vulnerable first and then working up that way. Does that help? It hey, if I, the, if I had the answer, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be retired. I'd be doing something different. <laughs> so complicated. So complicated. It is. But I really appreciate you. Uh, you're a thoughtful and kind leader in our industry. And I really appreciate you, man. Appreciate the thought and um, your contribution to it. And uh, for sharing what you did today. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you, your time. You've been a good friend. So thanks for years of support, pal. My pleasure. 